Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HVC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the Heart and Vascular Care podcast. And really proud to say we've done several episodes, trying to get about one episode every month. And as you know, I think we have some great providers who have really interesting stories. And um, we've been able to interview them and learn a lot about cardiology. But I think we also want to get to know some of our newer providers. And today we have a provider who started just one month ago, Dr. Ben Goins. Now, Ben is originally from Georgia, but he went to medical school in Tennessee. And then um, he actually went to the U.S. military. He was in the Air Force and did his fellowship in the Air Force and then served in a base in Florida as well as in Afghanistan. And we really want to hear about that because... Um, I think that's something to uh, be proud of. And I believe he's still in the military. He's in the reserve. So um, Ben, just a couple of questions. What what led you to the military? What led you to cardiology? Uh, just bad decision making on my part, first off. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I grew up in, um, in Columbus, Georgia, which is, is, is an army town. So I knew I didn't want to do army. Um, and I always thought that I wanted to serve and just wanted to do it kind of on my terms. And so um, medical school um, and being a, a military position seemed like um, the, the best way to do that for me. Um, the Navy had too many uniforms and the Air Force was a good mix. So that's why I ended up in the Air Force. So um, what led you to cardiology? Uh, I really, um, I really like taking care of sick people. Uh, so I was kind of torn between um, doing critical care or cardiology, and I felt like a lot of outpatient pulmonology ended up being, you have some random three-letter disease that is was not steroid responsive, and we can't help you either way. And so I felt like cardiology had a lot more pathophysiology that was better understood and the therapeutics were much better and the chance of recovery and meaningful quality of life afterwards was a lot better in cardiology. I think, yeah, that led a lot of us to cardiology. We feel we could diagnose disease, but not just diagnose. There's really effective treatments for really all of the main areas of cardiology, coronary disease, arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation, heart failure, hypertension. You know, that's that's probably the majority of what we treat, but even the other things, there's some really great treatments for valve disease too, of course. Sometimes medicines, sometimes procedures, sometimes yeah. surgery, and, uh, and that makes it really exciting. Because I agree that the therapeutics that have come out in the last decade across the board have been just really impressive and made really, uh, really significant clinical improvements uh, potentially for a lot of patients. So I, I got in, I think, at a pretty good time. How was cardiology different um, in the military than in, um, you know, I guess, civilian life? <laughs> That's been, it's been very interesting. Um, so what I, I saw, not just active troops, which is what a lot of people assume. So I would see 
active duty military, I would see retirees and then I would also see their dependents. So I would see, you know, like a normal cardiology clinic, I would see a lot of older patients. Um, and then I would also, but then I would see uh, probably a fairly good proportion of people in their twenties and thirties who were coming in with mostly low risk stuff. Although I had a really interesting uh, scimitar syndrome guy that got missed by his previous cardiologist um, when he was seeing a civilian guy out West and, um, uh, and then just some other kind of interesting things would come up. And so um, it was, there's a lot of, um, you have to understand what um, the patients and the Air Force will call it an AFSC. It's what their, um, it's what their job is and what their job is has certain specifications and requirements as far as things medicines they can and can't be on conditions they what it all boils down to is is this person deployable or not deployable and so that's ultimately what your decision making has to be is can this person go to an austere environment and perform their job um, safely um, and uh, that's a lot of what your decision-making pathway is based on. And so it's, it's interesting because um, it's kind of like sports cardiology. Um, but I, you know, if I went to a sports cardiology conference and they talk about, oh, well, it's a, it's a shared decision-making pathway between the player and the coach and, and the team. And there's no, there's no shared decision-making with these guys. You are the one who gets to decide if they go or don't go. Um, and so, because they usually want to go. And so um, you're the one who decides if, they, if they're safe to do that or not. And so it's, there is no shared decision making with them, unfortunately. It's you're, you're kind of the final arbiter for these things. So, but it was really enjoyable at, at Eglin. We had a lot of, um, the seventh special forces group was um, about 20 miles north of us. So they were in our catchment. We saw a lot of those guys. They were wonderful guys to take care of and work with. Um, there was, um, I, I took care of some military working dogs um, when I was deployed and then when I got back. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and so it was, um, it was very, um, interesting in some ways. And I got to do things that I, um, would not have gotten to do otherwise. That's awesome, Dr. Goins. And I kind of wanted to piggyback off of that. I noticed that your, um, passion points are sports cardiology and taking care of recreational athletes. Um, would you mind kind of speaking to your, you know, your experience in that and, uh, how that became a passion point for you? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, um, I enjoy fitness. It's a, it's a kind of a hobby of mine. And so uh, I, before I went into internal medicine, I was torn between uh, orthopedics or sports medicine and, um, and internal medicine. Uh, and so cause I really enjoy, um, again, um, athletes and, and, and sports medicine. So, um, uh, and then it's a function of being um, at this place where I had a really high functioning group of people I, you know, I kind of by default or without choice had to kind of, because these people function at, you know, the special forces guys, also Hurlburt uh, Air Force Base is very close to Eglin, which is, 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 is the entire base is special operations. So um, th these people operate at a, at a level commensurate with almost any professional athlete that you would take care of. I mean, they are exceptionally fit. Um, but their, their fitness is not, um, a function of their ability to, uh, make a play or, uh, complete a shot or uh, they complete a shot, but a different kind of shot. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a literal, it's a life or death, um, thing for them. And so, um, they understand very well that if 
they are in an austere environment and um, something happens to them, they they not only compromise themselves, they compromise the team and the mission. And so um, uh, wanting to make sure that these guys got the best care that I could provide for them uh, was um, it was it was it was a nice parlay off of a previous interest of mine into um, having and taking that further. And also, you know, pe people who are recreational athletes and kind of, you know, we call them tactical athletes or industrial athletes. Um, they're all pretty highly motivated. They want to, they really want to get better. They really want to get back to their, uh, whatever their sport is. Um, and so uh, they're just a really, um, they're a, a fun population to, um, take care of because they're usually very highly motivated. They come in with a lot of great prehabbing and so they can rehab really well. So they're just a, sometimes a very rewarding population to care for. So in the, you know, in the military, as well as in, you know, our, our practice, um, you know, we see, you know, pilots. Um, I know in the military, sometimes they have the flight surgeon, but, you know, the cardiologist is, is involved too when there's a, a cardiac pathology and um you know dealing with commercial pilots and recreational pilots um you know it's a real challenge sometimes getting especially commercial pilots back in the air in, in their occupation after a cardiac diagnosis or event um you know also dot's another thing but we could talk maybe just you know we do have um i think providers who listen to this um and i think um especially I would say nurse practitioners that are newer grads, I think it's really helpful maybe to talk about your experience. I would say I think the military pilot may be very unique, but even with commercial pilots, uh, your take on it um, and, and how you sort of approach them and try to get them back to the air, which is a real challenge. Yeah, so it can, so it can be. In the military, it's a very specific thing because um, they every aircraft is placed into a classification. And so you have basically your highest performance aircraft, which are things where you're pulling eight or nine Gs. So you have to be care, careful for G-lock and um, or that's loss of consciousness due to, to high Gs. And so, um, you know, they have the most restrictive um, limitations and they're, and they're just super hard. If they have almost anything, they're very hard to get in the air. And even they even can't, if you put them on a beta blocker or a cast blocker for just a palpitation, that's it, man. They're done. They, they can't get back in the air. So they're extremely limited in what they can do. And then you have um, class two and class three that are more liberal. Um, it's interesting. I had a really great um, patient who I was seeing right before I left. Uh, he was uh, a colonel chopper pilot. So he was an army chopper pilot. And he had uh, instantly discovered a complete, uh, high, highly calcified CTO was RCA. He was in his 50s. He completed the Bruce Protocol. Um, so terribly fit guy, just amazingly fit. He had such amazing collaterals that um, he, on his nuclear imaging, he had no evidence of ischemia because he had collateralized himself so well. His flight doc, his Army flight doc, told him that basically he was done. And the guy was great. He just basically got mad because he, someone told him no, and he didn't want to accept that. And so we were fighting really hard to get him back in the air. Um, a guy I happened to do fellowship with just happened to do a, um, a high-risk CTO a fellowship, interventional fellowship at Cleveland Clinic. And I sent him up there, and he did some studies up there on him. And so basically we were 
pushing very hard to get him requalled to, to fly again. And this guy's not going to be a combat pilot as a colonel, but he just he just wanted to get back in the air and, and get his hours in. And so um, uh, they, they can be very, very challenging. The easiest thing that, in my experience, I, did, I didn't deal with the FAA a ton, but the easiest way for me is to, if for the organization to tell me, this is what we need to know. You t if they can give me an, an explicit list of questions that I need to answer, then I can usually answer those questions. Um, and so that's what probably the most concerning thing, or the hardest thing is sometimes is they have a certain piece of data that they want to have. And it's just a matter of knowing that for us, because it, it may not clinically matter to us, but it matters to them. For example, the FAA, if you have a history of coronary disease, when you run a treadmill, they want you to get to 100% of max break to heart rate. So that may not matter for us clinically. We may say that 85 is fine, and so we're done, but the FAA will, will not count that. They will not consider that. So again, it's just we're treating the organization, not the patient sometimes. And so that's, I think, probably the most challenging thing to understand from a, a clearance standpoint and return to flying status standpoint in a lot of these folks. Yeah, I think, I mean, we definitely see the commercial pilots. So um, I've had several that have had heart attack or stent or bypass surgery. And, um, you know, it, it's a challenge. They need a stress test every year. So, mm -hmm. you know, by just American College of Cardiology guidelines on asymptomatic patient and insurance too, they doesn't, we don't do stress tests every year. And sometimes yeah. it's nuclear stress tests. So, um, you know, a lot of radiation, a lot of testing, not much risk, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's, it's not really the standard of care except for those patients. Um, and then they want, um, you know, a cath pretty often too. Sometimes even with a normal stress test, they come back and ask for a cath. So it is a bit of a black box. Um, I don't, yeah. um, I don't think like I can for a DOT. I, I don't think I could list exact rules. I know that a pacemaker or a defibrillator, you're completely out. Um, you know, a reduced ejection fraction, you're probably completely out. Um, and then the medicines, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of predict what medicines they're going to let the patient take, even if they're tolerating the medicine. So it's a unique yeah. thing. Usually you submit everything to the FAA and um, it's a real challenge for, for commercial pilots. Recreational is, is very similar to, you know, DOT, um, like a commercial truckers. It, it's not mm -hmm. as hard for recreational uh, pilots, but for commercial pilots, it's a challenge. Um, there is a cardiologist, I think, in Arizona who is a pilot himself. I think one in Florida who's, who a lot of times they have like a pilot's union and they usually end up sending the patient there. And I think, um, you know, it, it's a, about the testing they do, the wording they do. And I have, I have had several patients that I actually said, you may want to go there. And I yeah. believe their pilot's union supports that. Um, you'd be very careful what you document. Obviously, you want to do what's right, but you don't want to preclude a person from working. Um, yeah, working with their, they have, they have civilian flight docs, essentially, that mm -hmm. they will go see, just like a cash DOT physician they'll see. And so I, I tell them, say, look, I, I will help you as much as I can. I need to know there's a specific question that somebody wants answered. So if you can bring me that question and ha have your flight doc, have that person explicitly let me know what I need to answer for them um, or for the organization, um, that's been my most successful pathway to getting them back is 
finding out someone who does this on a regular basis knows the question that has to be answered bring it to me and then i will try to answer the best i can um and so yeah i agree with you about the testing situation the last time i did this um i told the patient i said hey you'd be a really good coronary cta patient and they, that was not listed as an option for the faa they didn't allow coronary cts which is ridiculous so a little archaic and dot's a little yeah. archaic too um but we had to play by those rules i've had mm -hmm. a couple pilot, commercial pilots that retired and then I have a couple that come every year for a uh, nuclear stress test. Um, <laughs> I think we just go by the book, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they Phil want. Was an um, he's an anesthesiologist who flew antique aircraft for fun. So he had to have a certain FAA qualification that required him to get a nuclear stress test every year. And I, I was like, hey, look, man, this is, I get it's your hobby, but this is a lot of radiation year after year after year, just so you can fly, you know, a B-51 or, you know, around for funsies. So <laughs> maybe you should find other hobbies. So, Well, um, tell us maybe a little bit about, I mean, I think that to me, it, going to Afghanistan and being at, I think it's, um, you know, the Green Zone or Bagram Air, Air Base, it sounds pretty scary to me, you know. Um, <laughs> And uh, I mean, it's tough being away from your family. I can't imagine having to deal with something like that. And we're 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 proud of you, just like your family is for what you did. Um, you know, there's got to be some some humor in, in in uniform. So any any stories? Uh, I know you shared a few in the past. <laughs> is this a family friendly podcast? I don't know. That's <laughs> So uh, yeah, I was I was at Bagram Airfield, um, aka otherwise it's called Bath. Um, it got a lot of attention when Afghanistan um, kind of collapsed a couple years ago. Is uh, anyway, so yeah, I was there for six months, uh, or it was supposed to be six months, ended up being nine months, courtesy of of COVID. Um, so it was uh, the appointment was very interesting. It was ninety nine percent boredom, with one percent kind of terror and panic. And so um, it was interesting because. Um, I was there, I had a very kind of weird bimodal distribution of patients. I saw a lot of um, the active duty troops I saw were overall young and healthy. Um, I did have one kind of mid fifties Hawaiian um, reservist who was there. He was, he, anyway, he had a positive stress test and I sent him home and he texted me a week later and said, Hey doc, thanks a bunch. I got a mid LED stent. So, but overall the, the active duty people I saw, they were very young and healthy. So it's a lot of you know, palpitations and low risk chest pain. And yeah, you know, I put them on a treadmill and I, I do an echo, like I was the echo tech there. So uh, I do an echo on them and then kind of, that was all I could do for them. And so, um, and then, um, then it was a lot, there were a lot of contractors there. So the base had about 40,000 people on it, uh, about half active duty, about half contractors. And so the contractors were just a total disaster. They were metabolic nightmares. Um, they, it's very lucrative to go there. So there was a lot of um, questionable medical clearances before they got out there and stuff. And so um, I took care of about a half a dozen STEMIs when I was there, had maybe a couple more that I kind of helped manage by phone. It's very 1980s medicine. You have lytics. Uh, I, I had never pushed lytics in my entire life uh, for a STEMI until I got there. Um, and so um, I floated a, a transvenous pace a guy out there um, to, to get them on a plane and get them out. Um, and so we ended up doing therapeutic or, or now it's called TTM, targeted temperature management on a guy a, 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 who had an arrest out there. He was, um, 
an interesting guy. He was walking out of, there's a restaurant on base called Diseases. Everyone loves Diseases. It gets like four and a half stars on Yelp. You can go look it up. It's got like 5,000 reviews. Um, it's probably closed now. Dude, so you want to uh, go back there? Uh, dude, uh, Diseases was really Jesus. good. <laughs> uh, if I could not get shot, I would probably go back. So, uh, but, uh, so the guy's walking out of Aziz's and, um, he just like very classic grabs his chest and then collapses. It just happens that, uh, some of the nurses are walking out of Aziz's right behind him. They, to their infinite credit, jump on his chest immediately, start doing CPR. Some guy pulls up in a pickup truck. They throw him in the back of the pickup truck. They, they bring him, uh, as quick as they can to the, um, to the ER. Um, I was at the gym when all this is happening and there's no, there's no cell phones on base. It's all Wi-Fi, and the gym I was at had no Wi-Fi service. So I get back to my room where there is Wi-Fi, and my phone starts blowing up via WhatsApp for all these messages. Hey, guy coding, guy coming in, guy arresting. Anyway, so I, I run to the, to the ER on base. He's been coding for about 20 minutes. I've done a bunch of stuff. And so anyway, we ended up getting him back eventually. And, um, yeah, so he had poor neurologic outcome. And so, yeah, we cooled him. So we had a cooling system there. We put, um, we used that. We also put some blankets on him. So we put blankets, put a, blew a fan across him, um, got him really cooled off. And then we ended up transporting him out um, to uh, a local, relatively local area. Uh, he went to Cutter, I think, uh, where he ended up getting uh, angiography and, you know, percutaneous cabbage, essentially. And um, he he had some recovery. Last I heard, he didn't have full recovery, but um, you know, he, it was, it was kind of a, a win for, for those nurses and for the, for the ER and stuff for really making a pretty good call for getting this guy back. So, um, but it was a very interesting experience. Again, uh, when COVID hit, we could not get patients out anymore to, we could not transport them out. So we had a guy who had a STEMI, we gave lytics, he was improving. Uh, he went into, he went into sustained VT for a while. We shocked him out of that. He did fine. And we could not, we could not get him out of theater. And so, um, I, he'd been there for a week. And so I literally had to do a literature search for what to do for essentially non-revascularized STEMI patient. And I found a very nice review article from 1983 um, <laughs> that told me what to do. And so I uh, put the guy on a treadmill and ran him on the Naughton protocol, uh, just like it said. And so, uh, you know, uh, he was cleared to, to discharge from the hospital. Uh, he had a preserved EF, and um, he got on a plane uh, a few days later and flew home to North Carolina, where he was from. So, but again, it was it was very 1980s um, medicine there. So very for, for me. If you get shot there, you're in amazing hands. If you if you have to choose a place to get shot, that's the place to get shot because the trauma care there is amazing. The medical care there was this um, not with what a trauma hospital is built for. So that was. <laughs> Less than though. Amazing. I mean, wherever you go, you get to help people. You know, like I think that's what appeals to both of us in cardiology. You know, obviously we have a lot of facilities at our disposal here in Northside and Emory, but you know, it, it's amazing. Even even there, you can. Um, so that, that's a that's a really great story. It was it was interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're, we're glad to have you back from from uh, from your from your duty. I guess you're doing some reserve work now. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the National Guard, uh, yeah. so I, I joined a unit. It's actually down in Marietta, is where they're stationed out of. Uh, but yeah, so um, I, I did 11 years active duty, and so um, I'll finish out my um, career and retire out of the out of the guard. So unless they kick me out. Well, we're we're ha we're really you know happy to have you here at HVC, and I think Woodstock is going to be very excited to have you, and you'll be a huge success there. So um, thank you very much. 
yeah, I'm thrilled to be here and it's been a great experience so far. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to have uh, joined the practice. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another cardiology focused episode.